and welcome to X-Men Unraveled, a podcast about understanding the history of the X-Men. My name is Noelle, and this week I'm so excited to start getting into the comics with the ancient origins of one of the X-Men's most powerful enemies, Apocalypse. If you saw the 2016 X-Men Apocalypse movie, he was played by the one and only Oscar Isaac, even though it was hard to tell with all the makeup. And um, I did a rewatch of it to prep for recording this, and while I didn't love the movie, they did show how powerful and dangerous Apocalypse is. I'm not going to get into the movie a whole lot today, but to recap, if you didn't see it or don't remember, Apocalypse lives in ancient Egypt and transfers his consciousness into a mutant with healing powers. He gets buried alive in a pyramid, and then emerges in the 1980s to try and take over the world with the help of four powerful mutants. Of course, he is stopped by the X-Men. And that is a lot different and honestly less interesting than his comic book life, which is what I am going to start with today uh, from his origin story as told in the limited series The Rise of Apocalypse numbers 1 to 4 from 1996 and 1997. Apocalypse wasn't actually introduced into the X-Men universe until 1986 in X-Factor number 5. He was created for the series by writer Louise Simonson when they needed a main supervillain for the X-Factor team to face off against. Originally, it was planned for a villain from the Daredevil series, I think the Owl, if I'm remembering correctly, Um, but he was supposed to show up and make an appearance in that X-Factor issue, but it was ultimately decided that a brand new villain should be introduced to the series as the key antagonist to the X-Factor team. With that in mind, Simonson came up with the concept for the supervillain Apocalypse. And in the end, she not only created a major foe for the X-Factor team, but one that would go on to be one of the most dangerous villains that the X-Men face. Simonson created Apocalypse with the idea that he follows the concept of survival of the fittest as his own personal creed. In an interview, Simon said that due to a run-in with the powerful cosmic beings known as the Celestials, Apocalypse, quote, realized there was a time when humanity might be judged unworthy and destroyed. Consequently, he's been using Darwinian principles, survival of the fittest, to kill off the weak and force the survivors to grow stronger, to push humanity to get better and more powerful. He considers himself the apocalypse of modern man and the father of what humanity will come next, mutant kind. So, Apocalypse is convinced of the need for mutants to become as strong of a race as possible, and he sets out to test mutants to find and recruit the strongest, and eliminate the rest. But, you might be wondering why I'm talking about a mutant that wasn't even introduced into the X-Men comics um, until they'd been around and being published for over 20 years. And that is because, as the comics progress and Apocalypse's story is revealed, It turns out that he is an ancient mutant from Egypt named N. Saba Nur. So, who is this apocalypse aside from a ruthless proponent of Darwinian ideas? As far as appearance goes, he's kind of a scary-looking dude. He's huge, usually depicted about, 
uh, seven feet tall and 300 pounds, according to Marvel.com. His skin is completely gray, and he has bright blue markings across his face. Apocalypse has an array of powers, including immortality, superhuman strength and speed, the ability to transform parts of his body into weapons, like turning his limbs into knives, axes, or even guns. He also possesses energy absorption and transfer, along with many other abilities, so he's insanely powerful. But Apocalypse doesn't manifest all of these powers initially when he's introduced, um, or when he's younger, but he gains them as he passes through the centuries in various ways, including his run-in with the Celestials. In a scene of X-Men Apocalypse, they kind of get into that element of Apocalypse acquiring more powers uh, when his consciousness is transferred. So in the movie, he moves into the new body and he gains the ability to heal. Um, but in the comics, that's actually one of his own uh, personal powers. But Apocalypse wasn't always the world-threatening force that he became. He actually starts out as an abandoned newborn in the Egyptian desert about 5,000 years ago. Apocalypse is one of the world's earliest mutants, born in Egypt around the year 3000 BCE. Uh, he is really old, but like I mentioned in the last episode, there's another mutant named Selene who is 17,000 years old, so he is not the oldest mutant by a long shot. But for a number of years in the comics, Apocalypse and other mutants did believe he was the first mutant, and that seems to be part of what drives his megalomania. Like Simonson said in her interview, he views himself as the father of mutants, and that makes him believe he should be able to shape their future. But baby Apocalypse did not seem like he'd last more than a day or so, because shortly after his birth, his family abandoned him in the desert to die. They were afraid of his startling appearance, probably assuming he was either sick or cursed. Luckily for him, if not for, like, the rest of the world, he is rescued by a man named Bale. And this guy is the leader of a nomadic group known as the Sandstormers. They are fierce warriors who follow the code survival of the fittest, and that is where Apocalypse gets the creed that he follows the rest of his very, very long life. When Bale takes Apocalypse in, uh, they are not happy about it, and they are pretty pissed that Bale brought this grotesque little baby among them. Uh, the rest of the Sandstormers believe that there must be something really wrong with him, or he wouldn't have been abandoned in the first place. But Bale overrules them and takes the baby in, adopting him as his own son and names him En Saba Noor. This name was intended to mean something like the first one in reference to the early assumption that he was the world's first mutant, but there was some sort of translation error on the part of the writers, and so it actually translates to something more like uh, morning light or dawn in Arabic, which still, you know, it works as the dawn of mutants or whatever. Uh, the intention makes it through. But... This is ancient Egypt, and they wouldn't have been speaking Arabic anyway. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that in this comic, and my history nerd side really struggled. But it is a comic and not a history book, so, you know, I, I just tried to let it all go. 
Um, for the sake of clarity in this episode, I am going to refer to Apocalypse as Nur from here on out. That's N-U-R, which is how he is referred to throughout the series. Only after the events of all four issues does he actually take on the name of Apocalypse. So from here on out, Apocalypse is Nur. So around the same time that Bale rescued baby Noor, he also rescued a man who crashed into the desert in what I'm going to call for now an alien spaceship. Bale took the man back to the Sandstormers camp and nursed him back to health, but when the man recovers, he just leaves suddenly in the night, and pretty soon, Bale ends up hearing that that man managed to become the pharaoh of Egypt, calling himself Ramatut. Ramatut is able to become the pharaoh so quickly and easily because he is actually a time traveler from the year 3000 CE, known as Kang the Conqueror, or Nathaniel Richards, and he used his advanced technology to take power in Egypt. And this guy has his own long, complicated story in the comics, so I'm opting to just leave his background at that because I didn't have the time to get too far into it. Um, But I have actually seen a couple articles that he's going to be brought into the MCU in Phase 4. So, you know, hopefully they will dive into that background more than I have time to today. And even though he is, like, the main villain in this story, his origins aren't actually super relevant. So for simplicity's sake, just know that Ramatut is a time traveler turned pharaoh. The comic reveals that Ramatet time-traveled to ancient Egypt specifically in order to find Nur, who he calls the Child of Destiny. Ramatet's plan is a little bit confusing, because at one point he says he wants to make Nur his heir, but then another time he says he wants to enslave him, and that seems a little bit contradictory to me. Uh, But either way, being from the future... He knows that Noor will become Apocalypse, and he wants to take advantage of that. Not long after becoming Pharaoh, Ramatut returned to the Standstormers to try and learn the location of his crashed ship from Bale. He had been seriously injured and blinded in the crash, so he had no idea where it was. And the ship contained the information and additional technology to find Noor and carry out Ramatut's plan, but Bale refused to tell him where it was. Ramatut even tortured Bale and the other Sandstormers to get the location, but they never told him. And it isn't spelled out, but I am guessing that Bale doesn't have Noor at this point, because I would imagine that some of the Sandstormers might have betrayed Bale to be rid of the mutant baby. Um, but that's just my thoughts on it, though. Not actually said in the comics. For 17 years, Noor lived and trained with the Sandstormers and remained hidden from Ramatut. However, aside from Bale, none of the Sandstormers accept Noor. They call him a monster because of his appearance, and they don't even try to hide their disgust and hatred for him. So that's his rough time growing up among them. Um, but Bale's protection is enough to keep him safe, along with Noor's own skill as a warrior. When he is 17, Noor has to take part in a battle to the death to earn his place among the Sandstormers, and this is essentially how they weed out the weak members of the group. The other Sandstormers are more than happy to have a chance to finally be rid of Noor. He, however, defeats three of them on his own fairly easily in combat. 
Bale is proud of him, but Noor is still understandably upset and hurt at never being accepted by the other warriors. While this is going on in Noor's life, Ramatut receives information from his vizier, Logos, which is a Greek name, not ancient Egyptian, uh, and Logos tells him that he has found Noor's location. Ramatut sees this as his opportunity to finally get what he traveled 6,000 years through time for, which of course is Noor. So he sends his general, Ozymandias, another Greek name that I may or may not be pronouncing correctly, uh, he sends him with a force to capture Noor. So after Noor finishes his ritual battle, Baal takes him to a secret underground structure called the Hound of the Sands. He explains that it contains the vessel that Ramatut crashed in. He also tells him that the Sphinx, which is in the capital, is one of Ramatut's sources of power. And there's a panel in the comics of the Sphinx crashing fully formed into the desert, and I was pretty amused by it. I'd look it up if you can. Um, so Bale leads Noor to an artifact called the Eye of Ages that he discovered in the vessel, which gives visions of the future. When Bale looked into the artifact after Ramatut's crash, he saw a vision of Noor and believed that Noor using the artifact and the Sphinx can defeat Ramatut. But Noor is impatient. He takes the Eye of Ages, seeing his own vision, uh, but also causing a massive cave-in that traps he and Bale underground. While they're in the caverns, Ozymandias and the Pharaoh's army try to attack the Sandstormers in order to find Noor. But the Sandstormers are prepared and ambush them. However, before either side can win, the cave-in causes both groups to be swallowed up by the desert. The only survivor turns out to be General Ozymandias. Noor below ground is fatally injured from the cave-in, but his emerging powers heal him miraculously and quickly. Once he can walk, he and Bale try to find a way out of the caverns, but after a week goes by, they are still lost. With no food or water, Bale is unable to go on and dies. Noor is devastated and is now determined to defeat Ramatut, who he blames for the death of the only person that has ever cared about him in his entire life. Noor keeps walking underground for a month and finally finds his way out of the caverns. He is surprised to be greeted by Logos, the pharaoh's vizier, when he emerges on the surface. Somehow, I don't exactly understand how, but uh, the pharaoh and Logos knew when and where Noor would emerge from the caverns, despite not being able to find him for 17 years in the first place. So, kind of convenient, but it happens. Um, however, Logos doesn't take Noor to the pharaoh, and instead he hides him among the slaves working on the pyramids in the capital city. He betrays Ramatut because he fears the alliance between Ramatut and Ozymandias will destroy Egypt and its civilization. Logos covers Noor in bandages to hide as much of his distinctive physical features as possible. And it is hard to say how someone wrapped up like a mummy is inconspicuous, but it works somehow. And Noor agrees to wait and be patient, even though he wants to get to the Sphinx ASAP to learn how to defeat Ramatut. Now that Noor is hidden in the Pharaoh's city waiting for his revenge, we have to get into the situation around Ramatut a little more in depth. So he's the Pharaoh from the distant future. 
Logos the Vizier has apparently wholeheartedly supported Ramatat up to this point, but he sees a way to defeat him with Noor's help. Then we have the top general, Ozymandias, who has returned to the city as well after somehow surviving the cave-in. Um, and the relationship between Ozymandias and Ramatut is a little bit complicated, because if uh, Ramatut hadn't showed up from the future and usurped the throne, Ozymandias would be pharaoh. So he is working for Ramatut and uh, forming this alliance, but he also hates him for stealing power. He only allies himself to Ramatut because he knows he cannot possibly defeat him on his own because of Ramatut's technological superiority. In an effort to further their uneasy alliance, Ramatut is set to be married to Ozymandias' sister, a woman named Nefri. She is pretty unhappy with the situation and hates Ramatut for his brutality, but she doesn't have a choice in the matter because uh, patriarchy. So when Logos the Vizier brings Noor into the city, Nefri accidentally overhears their conversation and thinks that Noor might be the one to save them all from Ramatut. So, back to Noor. He has a run-in with Ozymandias, his, who is now overseeing construction on the pyramids. Noor passes close to Ozymandias while he's working, but he fails to show proper deference. So Ozymandias gets pissed, and he pushes Noor off of the very high ledge that they're standing on. Noor falls several stories onto solid rock, and Ozymandias obviously expects him to be dead. But as Noor is lying on the ground, he has a vision of the goddess Isis and a sudden awakening of more of his powers. He not only survives the fall, but actually levitates into the air and emanates a bright light. His fellow slaves are obviously amazed and believe he is a god. Ozymandias is just more furious and definitely wants Noor killed now. Uh, but before he can do anything, the situation is interrupted when a fire breaks out at the palace. Ozymandias and the other guards have to leave to go check on the safety of the pharaoh. It turns out, surprisingly enough, the fire was started by the arrival of the time-traveling Fantastic Four. I don't know about you, but that was a surprise appearance to me as I was reading the comic. Um, truth be told, I don't know why exactly they show up at this time, uh, but Ramatut does have more of a history with the Fantastic Four in their comic series, so kind of it makes sense that way, um, but still, I was a little surprised when the Fantastic Sh Four magically show up, and I'm sure that their appearance is explained somewhere else in more detail, but they actually don't have a whole lot of impact on the story as it relates to Apocalypse, so I didn't really get into it. Mainly because I have quickly realized making this podcast that if I follow too many rabbit holes as I read the comics, I will never come back and I will never get anything done. So that was one of those uh, threads I chose not to follow. So Ramatad is able to capture the Fantastic Four pretty easily through some device he has from the future that puts them under his control and saps their will. Pretty much turns them into automatons. Then he decides that Sue Storm is gonna make an better uh, fiancé than Nefri. Completely, you know, just pushing Nefri aside and forcing Sue Storm, the invisible woman, to be his new betrothed. 
Um, because, you know, you just swap out one woman for another, right? Doesn't matter. And I guess his alliance didn't matter to him that much either, since he just puts it aside pretty quickly with the first woman that shows up from the future. After Noor's fall from the pyramid, he is rescued by the slaves around him, and they are assisted by Nefri, who hides Noor in one of the pyramids. She takes care of him and explains that she thinks he could be Egypt's savior. Noor falls immediately in love with Nefri, and he does demand that she take him to the Sphinx, but importantly to the story, his features are still hidden by the bandages, and he refuses to let her actually see his face. Ramata hears about the events surrounding Noor's fall and threatens Ozymandias to find him ASAP because he realizes that he is finally so close to capturing Noor. So when Noor and Nefri arrive at the Sphinx, Ozymandias is already there waiting to ambush them, with Logos, the vizier, having already been captured. Nefri is apprehended and set to be killed in the front of the city, alongside Logos, for their betrayal of Ramatut. And Noor is brought directly to Ramatut, who demands that Noor bow to him. Noor refuses. Ramatut then removes Noor's bandages, and the assembled crowd is horrified to see his appearance. And sadly, this includes Nefri, who is now afraid of Noor and will not even look in his direction. Then things start to get a little out of control, and the story wraps up really fast. Uh, Logos is murdered. Nefri is saved by Ozymandias, and Ramatat attacks Noor, who manages to escape. Despite Noor's strength and powers, Ramatat is a real threat to him because he plans to use the same device that he used on the Fantastic Four to make Noor his pawn. In an effort to find Noor, Ozymandias chains up his sister Nefri in a pit of snakes to use as bait because he knows that Noor cares about her and will come and rescue her. Noor shows up, uh, he fights off a giant snake which appears out of nowhere, he defeats it pretty easily because he's growing more and more powerful as these events unfold. He is then attacked by a group of guards who injure him with spears, but he shakes off his wounds pretty easily and defeats them as well. He grows more and more enraged at the attacks, and it seems like his anger actually fuels his powers to increase even further. Uh, he grows physically larger and now towers above the people around him. He yells for Ozymandias and calls himself Apocalypse for the first time. Nefri is terrified of this turn that he's taken, and Noor flees the pit alone. He then goes to the Sphinx, where Ozymandias again tries to stop him. Noor overpowers him fairly easily, and then uses the technology of the Sphinx to defeat Ozymandias. He doesn't kill him, though. Uh, he's able to use the power in the Sphinx to essentially enslave Ozymandias, who he then forces to serve as his personal historian and servant in perpetuity. Like, he is his eternal servant now. Elsewhere, Ramatut and the Fantastic Four have apparently had their own fight, and they all return to their own times in a hurry. Noor then destroys Ramatut's Sphinx and the technology inside, and heads out alone into the desert, now as the heartless villain Apocalypse. The story ends with Apocalypse returning to the palace 50 years later to see Nefri on her deathbed. He mocks her for her life as a queen and tells her that she will be forgotten and he will live on. Apocalypse then leaves alone, set on conquering humanity. 
And that is the somewhat complicated origin of Apocalypse. He went from an abandoned baby to a fierce warrior and finally an extraordinarily powerful villain all in a very short span of time. And also he was 17 when this started and it doesn't seem like that much time goes by, so he's also pretty young. I really always enjoy stories that go back to the origins of really evil, powerful villains, especially ones like Apocalypse who end up with really no redeeming positive qualities. And essentially, the story reveals that Apocalypse's transformation into a supervillain is the result of a series of heartbreaks. First, he witnesses Bale's death, then Nefri rejects him, and finally, Logos's murder. There's also the lifelong rejection that he faced because of his appearance, and that's what led to his abandonment as a baby, the hatred of the other Sandstormers, and Nefri's disgust. But even with these tragedies, I have a hard time thinking that those things on their own are going to turn him into the monstrous apocalypse. It reminds me a lot of something you hear um, from true crime stories, that lots of people go through the same type of trauma that murderers go through, but they don't turn into serial killing monsters. But I do think it is hard to explain the motivations and origins of a true supervillain, so I get that this was an attempt to do that and... You know, they show where the survival of the fittest idea comes from. And, you know, his interactions with people are pretty sad the whole way through. And I wouldn't even put it in good movies necessarily, uh, but I think I actually liked the characterization of Apocalypse in the uh, X-Men Apocalypse movie more than this. Uh, because that version, he just seems completely emotionless and driven by a desire for power and conquest. And the apocalypse in this comic series seems very emotional, and I have a hard time seeing that as the motivation for an endless life of conquest and destruction. And I obviously don't mean, like, emotional, like, weepy or weak or something like that. I mean more like everything that happens is very personal, and his world is really very small. First, he's just among the Sandstormers, then he's in the capital of Egypt and interacts with really only four other people. So I don't see that translating directly into someone suddenly bent on world domination, uh, but it's an interesting story and a short read, so I'm just thinking out loud at this point. <laughs> anyway, so one huge difference between the movie and the comics is that the movie Apocalypse ends up buried alive in the wreckage of a pyramid for thousands of years before returning to wreak havoc on the world. In the comics, though, Apocalypse is roaming the Earth, murdering, plotting, recruiting powerful allies. He's a busy guy. And that means that there's more comics about his evil doings over the centuries, including a very fun to read run-in with Dracula. I will be getting into those stories in the next couple of episodes. If you want to read along, you can check out my Instagram at xmenunraveled or my blog at xmenunraveled.wordpress.com. I will let you know uh, in those places which issues I will be talking about on the next episode for anyone who's interested in reading. You can also find me on Twitter at xmenunraveled, or if you have questions or comments, you can email xmenunraveled at gmail.com. That is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, this lesson from Apocalypse, we all go through heartbreak. Don't let it turn you into a monster. Bye. <laughs>